everyone. As you may have noticed, our podcast has a new name. Don't worry, you'll still be getting the same insightful conversations with new thought leaders each month, delving into topics related to communications and current issues. Why the change? You'll have to stay tuned for a future episode coming soon where we'll give you all the details about the new name and what it signifies. For now, keep listening because we've got a great guest on the podcast who we know you'll enjoy. Introducing We've Got Issues. Hi everyone, I'm Riva Chessis. And I'm TJ Winnick. Welcome to We've Got Issues. Our guest today is a highly esteemed local expert and career journalist specializing in real estate and related topics such as housing, urban and suburban growth, and economic development. Tim Logan is the deputy business editor at the Boston Globe, a role he recently stepped into after six years as the paper's lead reporter covering housing and development. And before joining the Globe in 2015, Tim worked as a business reporter at the Los Angeles Times, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and daily papers in New York and Indiana. We are really excited to be speaking to him today. So let's get into it. Tim, thank you so much for being here. Hey, glad to be here. Tim, we wanted to kick this off by asking you, what's exciting you right now? What is uh, you and your team at The Globe tracking? What are your headlines for 2022? I think there's a few big stories that we're watching. I mean, obviously, the the biggest is sort of how, how Boston comes out of the pandemic, right? And how downtown Boston comes back, companies coming back into the office. And, and at what point do we start to see the vitality in downtown and in really a lot of neighborhoods, business-oriented neighborhoods of the city that we saw Two years ago, it's been a real slog getting back and a lot of stops and a lot of starts. So we're watching that pretty closely. I think another issue that is on everybody's talking about, and it's really powering the economy right now, is the life science industry and just the explosion of investment and of real estate investment and the companies that have sort of emerged out of nowhere and you know hiring tons of people looking for lots of space popping up in way more corners of the, the region than than previously. I mean, it's it's remarkable the degree to which an industry that was born in Kendall Square and to some degree, a few of the Northwest suburbs is really just sort of mushroomed all over the place. Uh, what's interesting now is that you're starting to see some of this growth slow and, and you've got some increasing numbers of layoffs at a lot of life science companies. Um, some some of them are struggling on the stock market and and is that is that a blip is that something that happens in a in a booming industry or is that does that augur some some bigger long-term concerns about the health of, of the life science industry that really has powered boston out of the pandemic over the last couple of years we're also writing a lot these days about about diversity and equity and inclusion efforts both in the government level the, the city massport some of the some of the major government players to sort of broaden the spectrum of who they do business with and also on the on the corporate sector, a lot of companies are you know really really now trying to be much more thoughtful about about who they hire, how they hire um, their their partnerships in the community, and those sort of things. So that's that's something that we're watching very closely. And then of course, you know, what are we? We're about six months now into a new mayoral administration, and obviously Mayor Wu has been really busy. There's a lot of pressing issues, but in the world of business and economics, uh, there's a few in particular. The, the the resurgence to downtown, they've really been pushing more on that. Just in the last few weeks, they've really sort of started to step into that and try to get people to come back downtown, try to get companies to bring their workers back. And then the the BPDA um, the, and, and what the Wu's administration's stance towards development is going to be. We have a brand new city planner, who uh, chief of planning, who starts later this month. Uh, he'll be overseeing the BPDA. Uh, he was in town last week. To uh, He was at the Parkman House, met with a bunch of sort of top developers about 
you know, it's just it's sort of a get to know you session. But I think that's going to be really interesting. Mayor Wu's made a lot of big talk about reforming. In fact, she wrote a big paper about abolishing the BPDA. Unclear what that looks like. And that's something that we'll be watching very closely. That's a lot of really interesting stuff to cover. And some of it we'll get into a little bit later. But first, I wanted to just ask because, you know, so many of the development proposals in Boston over the last few years seem to kind of fall into two categories. They're either luxury residential or life science lab. So from a news perspective, what makes a proposal stand out in Boston and what kind of projects stick out to you, you know, cutting through the clutter? That's a good question. I I will admit, having written about this stuff for six years and and edited it, I mean, these stories, these these projects tend to blur. There was a period of time where like, oh, it's office buildings in the seaport. Oh, it's another office building in the seaport. They all kind of look and feel and sound the same. And these days it's that way with lab projects. It feels like everything's a lab project and they're all very similar. And yeah, on the housing front too. I mean, there's only so many times you can be like, hey, look at this amazing condo building. So I think what, as far as what projects cut through to us, it tends to be things that speak to some broader issue. Or, you know, whether it's climate resiliency or the the dynamics of a, of a changing neighborhood. Yeah, the projects that sort of that have some other piece to them besides the real estate that is um, it's really interesting. That tends to draw our eye. And then we can use that. We can use that project and that conversation about that project as a sort of a lens into a bigger story about that issue. Like I mentioned, climate resiliency is a big one right now. We have a number of projects that are on the waterfront in various parts of the region of the city that are attempting to double as, you know, to, to be really thoughtful about, about their climate strategy and their, and how they address sea level rise and other, other issues. So that's something that we're definitely looking at a lot right now. Tim, the, the globe has never shied away from calling out industries when it comes to issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion, like you mentioned. And the real estate industry is no exception. And you, you also raised uh, the seaport neighborhood, which of course, Uh, your paper has scrutinized for its lack of diversity. Do you feel like the industry is headed in the right direction? And, you know, what do you believe leaders could be doing more in that area? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think that the development industry certainly means well when it comes to to diversity and equity, but I think it is it is what it is, and it, you know it takes a long time at some level for those things to change. I mean, the the developers in Boston and the and the brokerage community and the upper levels of the construction industry are largely white. They just are. They they have been, and it's going to take a while for new faces to rise. I think I think at the lower levels they're probably more diverse, and they're probably more diverse than they ever were. And there's a lot of internship programs and outreach programs, and more sincere and 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 systematic efforts to get new people into the real estate industry. But you know those people are 25 or 30. They're not they're not running the company yet. You give you know 20 years from now, sure. But a lot of people would say we can't wait 20 years either. So I think that. You, I think there are efforts afoot. Uh, all the stuff that what they call the Massport model, where they where where Massport over in recent years has been when they when they bid out public land, they they weigh a bunch of criteria. In recent years, one of the criteria has been the diversity of your project team. So you know, not just is the development does the development team include non-white principals or investors, but who have you hired for your architects? Who are your who are your consulting firms that you're working with and your your engineers and your, your various professional services? And there's a lot of good jobs in all that. And so I, now the now the city of Boston is really trying to lean into that as well. With some of the projects that they've bid out lately, they prioritize that. The there's so there's some pressure that the BPDA should 
way that not just on publicly owned sites, but also on how they how they do project review on privately held sites. Um, that's a little stickier and that conversation is just beginning, but but there's momentum in that direction as well. So I think that's where you start to get, you broaden the pool of players who do this work. And um, the trick, of course, is that there's only so many in Boston. And so, you know, it's a complicated game. So uh, how do you get out of town people who might be more diverse to, to come into a city that has a sort of historically has had a pretty high barrier to entry and and you've got to know how to operate here every city's that way in real estate but Boston is a, is a challenging place if you're not if you don't know the lay of the land so again how do you sort of navigate all that it'll be really interesting to watch I know the, the Wu administration seems very serious about it and I think they will um they'll continue to push in those directions there's a few out-of-town developers who've won some big sites lately and I'd be curious to see sort of how they how they do and if they do more and if more people follow them into the market um, thinking of like Peebles for instance yeah, of course, Boston being notoriously provincial, you know, uh, that that was the first thing that that came to my mind, which was, you know, are they going to have to look to more out of town, whether it's architects, developers, landscape architects, engineers, et cetera, for these projects if they're serious about those goals? Yeah, it's been interesting. Like I said, the, the People's Company out of New York City, um, I think they're maybe co-headquartered in Miami, you know, they've won a couple of sites, um, mass DOT sites, and they've, they've been in on a few as well. They're one of the largest Black-owned development firms in the country. There's a few others, but, you know, locally, there are only so many who are sort of capable of playing at that level. And um, so you either have to grow them here or find a broader pool from elsewhere. And that, that'll be interesting to watch. I also think your point about intention was interesting to think about, especially because you're right. The way that the development community is approaching this is, okay, well, we're going to do outreach in the community internships. We're going to start at the bottom so that our pipeline really brings in more diverse people at the same time we want it now. So there's a balance that everyone's still trying to figure out. I want to shift gears though to your industry and journalism and ask you how the pandemic and the rise of hybrid work has changed the dynamic of the newsroom. You know, how has it changed the nature of, of reporting your job as a deputy business editor, kind of all of it? Yeah, it's been really interesting. I think we left the office on March... 13th of 2020. And it was like, it was the Thursday was the first day we were remote. And uh, I said, Oh, we'll try this out for a day and see if we can do it. And we've basically never been back. So we did it and we kept doing it. And in the early months, it was wild. I mean, it probably like a lot of industries, it was just, there was one story and everybody just worked it nonstop basically for two months. And, you know, we figured out how to have our meetings on Zoom instead of in the conference room. We figured out, you know, we all live on Slack became the newsroom as far as the sense that like where you just talk to people, you know, and, 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 and we went and we sort of demonstrated that we could do it in a place that at least at our place, it sort of had been like, like when I got to the Globe six years ago, seven years ago now, there was like, like we were still in Dorchester and there was a sense that they you were expected to be there in person. They wanted to see you. They wanted to see a busy newsroom. And you didn't go home until your story was done. And, you know, it was it was sort of like you worked in the office. And, you know, even even though being a reporter, frankly, being in the office isn't always, that's not where the story is. So you don't really want to spend all day in the office. But we figured out how to do it, right? And then it kind of kept dragging and dragging. I think we were originally going to go back in person in September of 2020. Does that sound right? 
And then that got pushed. And then uh, there were so many waves to lose track after a while. But there have been various times when we were like, oh, we're going to go back to the office in a couple months, but soon, you know? And the most recent one, we were supposed to be back in the office this week, uh, actually, three days a week. And when the latest sort of virus wave bubbled up a couple weeks ago, they pushed it again. So um, we're sort of indefinitely out. But as far as the way it has changed what we do, I would say that we're more distributed. We communicate digitally quite a bit. I think probably like anybody. We did that to some degree beforehand anyway. But the fundamentals of what we do, talking to people, going places, telling stories is the same. You know, I think it was a period of time when going places was hard. And so we mostly worked by phone or Zoom which is not ideal, but a lot of that, we were doing a lot of, you know, a lot of phone work to begin before anyway. So it wasn't that different. Then going places became an option again. And uh, I would say that sort of the day-to-day product of the Boston Globe and our website doesn't really look any different than it did before. I think that, you know, like a lot of companies, particularly sort of a lot of white collar companies that have been remote, I think the the line between work time and, and non-work time in your day is a little blurred. There's sort of a constant, you know, you're, you're always on, News tends to be a bit that way anyway, but it's even more so in a in a sort of blurred remote world where like I'm not like commuting home necessarily at the end of the day. I'll be curious to see when we come back. I think some people, again, like like I think a lot of companies, like some people want to get back and some people are quite happy to work from home as much as they can. And um, I think companies have a lot to sort out as far as how that work culture is going to be. We have something like 80 new employees I'm not sure if that's in the newsroom or company-wide, but there's a lot of new people who've never worked in person at the Globe and integrating them, how they get to know the place. Yeah. How they learn the business, how they do sourcing and get to know their beats too. All that is really, is really interesting and different now. And I think um, I'm really curious to see as a, as a manager and as a, as a, as somebody who's been at the Globe for a while, I'm really, really curious to see how that, how that goes. And it's something we're all going to have to be really thoughtful and intentional about. Tim, you mentioned that the story is outside the newsroom, and I'm curious if the pandemic, and I don't want to be misinterpreted, the pandemic wasn't good for anyone, but the way the pandemic forced us to work differently, if that could have a positive impact on journalism in that, you know, you are sort of decentralized you know, you're out in the communities that you're covering. Does it force you to, again, sort of have, you know, a better finger on the pulse of, of what's happening and not retreat to the newsroom to necessarily write your story, but maybe to uh, be out there longer to pick up on things maybe you otherwise wouldn't have? I think it really depends on the person and how they work. I think that it's really easy. And I found this in myself as a reporter to never, when you're working from home, to never go anywhere. You just stay home you know, and, and you talk to the same people and you get the same stories and it's actually way worse, right? Like I'm not at a meeting. I don't go to BPDA meetings like I used to. And when I would go to a BPDA meeting, I would bump into 10 people and they would tell me things I didn't know. I'm not going to call those. I mean, I, I should, I know, call those 10 people, but realistically, human nature being what it is, like you're pretty focused on your task. And one of the things that I love about being a journalist and being a local journalist and being the kind of local journalist who gets out in the community is that like stories come to me all over the place and I don't always know when or where they're going to come, but by being out there, I see them and I hear them. And so I, I, I think that if you really make an effort to get out, then that's great. 
but it's easy to not. And it, it, it's easy to be like, oh, I got to write this story. So I got to sit here on my couch and then I'm not getting out. And so I, I, I think our journalism has been great. I think that, like I said, I don't know that you could look at the Boston Globe done remotely over the last two years and you would notice any real difference than the Boston Globe done the way it was done before. But I do think we've missed things because I think it's just your networks are different. And you're going to pick up, you know, you'll, you'll pick up some stuff like what you're really looking for, you'll find, but there's a lot of stuff that you didn't know that you were wanted to be looking for that you, that you miss my, and I, you know, I mean, I think everybody has a different perspective on this. My perspective is that like, especially for local journalists, like there's real value in being, being out there in the community. And that part of that is, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Globe moved downtown a few years ago. We used to be in Dorchester. We moved downtown in part because there was a desire on behalf of the company to be in the middle of everything. And to be like able to just pop across the street to City Hall instead of having to slip up there from from Morrissey Boulevard, for instance. And so we need to get back to that. So our final question for you is a, a little bit lighter fare. We wanted to ask whether the press release is still a valuable tool for journalists whenever we have a, a member of the fourth estate on. We always want to uh, pick their brains as to whether the press release, which is a tool that all of us in the PR industry use often across sectors, is is still something which, again, provides value to reporters in terms of being able to get all the important facts in one place or whether you'd much rather have a conversation with someone um, than, than read you know, something that's been, been written by a firm like ours. Um, I guess I want both. I, there's no there's no harm in press releases. They're I realize they're probably more work for you guys, so that's part of it. But um, no, I mean having like the basic facts written down is valuable. It saves time in that conversation that I also want to have, right? Like you send me a release about a project or a deal or, or whatever, like that's helpful. Maybe, you know, it depends on the level of the news too. If it's just a, if it's something we're just going to write a brief on, the press release can probably cover it and I can write off of that and that's fine. It also exists on online usually forever. So I can go back and find it. And it may be something that I didn't, we didn't write about at the time or it wasn't that big a deal when it happened, but it fits into some bigger thing that we're doing. And so I can just, they're like, oh, here, here's the basics on this. Oh, look, there's somebody I can call. I can find out more. It doesn't and it shouldn't supplant like doing the real the real reporting work, you know, having that conversation with whoever the principals are involved. That's really valuable too. Um, a lot of a lot of companies don't do that part. They just want to send out the press release so that they completely control the information. And that's, you know, that's a choice. But no, I don't think there's any, I think, that, I think they certainly, it certainly has its value uh, as a, as a tool. And yeah. There's no real downside from my perspective. All right. Well, listen, Tim, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We, we yeah. really appreciate you taking the time and spending uh, the half hour with us. Yeah. Thanks so much. And to our listeners out there, thanks for joining us for We've Got Issues. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss out on future conversations. And if you've enjoyed this conversation and previous episodes, let us know by leaving a review and following us on social media, issues underscore group on Instagram and at issues underscore group on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. We will talk to you soon.